0: Welcome to Healthy Dialogue, the podcast of the Alliance of Community Health Plans. Here's your host, ACHP CEO, Cece Connolly.
1: Welcome back to Healthy Dialogue. I'm Cece Connolly, and I have really been looking forward to Episode 7 for quite some time. As you may know, ACHP released its 10-year roadmap for healthcare reform earlier this fall. The document is the culmination of months of critical thinking and, oh yeah, a little bit of hand-wringing by our clinical and policy teams, government relations experts, and most importantly, our board of directors. It's chock full of common sense policy ideas that can put us on the road to affordability, higher quality of care, and better health outcomes. And it doesn't turn our entire health system upside down. Think of it as a down-the-middle approach that we believe offers a much more practical set of solutions than some of the extreme ideas that worked well as campaign fodder, but not so great in real life. When we first started brainstorming Roadmap 2030, we decided that instead of just being prescriptive, it was important to put some teeth into it. So ACHP member companies agreed to lead by example. And if you go online and go to achp.org and download the roadmap, please do take a look at the whole thing. But pay particular attention to that final page where we detail two significant pledges that our members agreed to. This is our own little put up or shut up. So here's what we're putting up. First of all, chronic disease, which accounts for about three-quarters of our country's health spending. ACHP's nonprofit community-based plans will be the first in the nation to track and improve population-based outcome measures for chronic disease. This will help us identify and address specific drivers of chronic conditions. Second, beginning next year, ACHP will release an annual report on affordability. This will be informed by real-life, on-the-ground case studies, initiatives that our members are undertaking to make health care more affordable. We'll focus on those ideas that are demonstrating the greatest success. These two pledges around affordability and chronic disease are not for our own entertainment. We'll share these industry-wide to encourage other health organizations to join us with strong evidence-based ideas. All three of our guests on today's Healthy Dialogue are passionate about the issues of chronic disease management and affordability. In a bit, we'll chat with Dr. Pat Cornier of Minnesota-based Health Partners, about chronic conditions. We also have a chance to talk with New York Congressman Tom Reed about bipartisan efforts to improve the health system. Yes, you heard me, bipartisan. But first, I'm so excited to welcome Priority Health CEO Joan Budden. my pleasure to welcome Joan Budden to Healthy Dialogue today. Joan is president and CEO of Priority Health in Michigan and has long championed an affordable and sustainable healthcare system. Under her leadership, Priority Health launched an easy-to-use tool that's revolutionizing how consumers access important health information. Joan, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Cece. It's so nice to be here.
1: We have been having such terrific conversations in this Healthy Dialogue series, and I'm so pleased to have you spend some time with us discussing the critical issue of affordability in healthcare. And I know from working with you over the years that it's been, it's been a passion for you. And so maybe we can start with what that is term means to you? Because everybody throws around affordability in healthcare. How do you think about it?
2: Yeah, good question. I'm so proud to be a major proponent of this initiative, which will highlight the success of the ACHP plans that have taken action to improve affordability in the healthcare system. So when people, health plans, talk about affordability, they often cite examples such as like lower premium, enhanced benefit at no additional cost to consumers, lower out-of-pocket costs for members, etc. And those are all really great practical examples. But at a really fundamental level, what affordability means to me is that people have access to the care that they need. It's the most basic principle of our entire healthcare ecosystem. We have services and programs that can help people maximize the quality of the life of their lives through getting the care that they need. But that care has become so costly. Costs have escalated so much. And there are so many different facets to how we impact that access and affordability that we really have to think through at a deeper level. How do we get people access to the care, but still make our healthcare ecosystem affordable for all? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to
1: take a step back for our Healthy Dialogue listeners, way back to pre-pandemic days when our board of directors gathered in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we were discussing our roadmap and the importance of leading by example. And I remember literally sitting at the end of the table with you and sketching out ideas around affordability, an affordability pledge, a report. You were really so instrumental in helping shape this commitment. Why is it important for members of the
2: Alliance of Community Health Plans to take this step Well, I think that we all play a role, right? And we all like to point at the other parts of the system as the culprits. And the truth be told is that we all can make an impact and make a difference. We're not in the healthcare business to return money to our investors. We're here to help the members we serve through partnerships with providers. And that's really a fundamental difference of who we are and should influence how and what we approach the products and services that we offer to the marketplace. So we can lead by example, we can make a difference and we can make a better product for consumers.
1: So you've been the CEO of Priority Health for a number of years now, and clearly you've been putting some of this into practice right there in your own company, but I'm struck by your comment about not having to post quarterly results to investors. Why
2: does that matter? So at Priority Health, we have always believed that part of the commitment to affordable healthcare starts with us. So we have one of the lowest administrative costs in the company, meaning how much we keep to run our business is 10 cents on the dollar or less. We are a nonprofit. So just in order to have enough reserves in order to be considered financially stable by AM Best, we make about two cents profits, meaning 88 cents of every dollar goes to care for our members. Contrast that with many large organizations who should have economies of scale, have admin costs of 15 to 18 cents on the dollar. They have investors, and so they need to have a return of 5% or 6% on the dollar. So they're only actually spending for the premium dollar they're giving, they're only spending about 80 cents on care for their members. That's a significant difference. It really does add up, as you say. And
1: of course, priority is part of Spectrum Health. And from your experience, what's the value of having the payer-provider alignment?
2: Well, let's talk pre-pandemic because I think that A lot of that has even been emphasized through COVID. But I think that where we have a differential from a standalone either provider or payer is that we are at the table every single week talking about the innovations, the challenges, the hurdles of delivering great care to people. And so we don't get to say it's somebody else's fault and not figure out how to solve it together. The payer and the provider are mutually talking about the challenges and mutually coming up with solutions that are in the best interests of the members. So that's different. I worked at a standalone insurance company who did really great work, but always had that divide from the payer side or the consumer side. And I think you really see it differently when you're integrated in all part of the same organization. Maybe we can
1: shift gears just slightly here, but again, related to the affordability topic is transparency, price and quality transparency. And that brings in the notion of consumers and consumer shopping. There's pretty fierce debate on some of that in healthcare. Share with our healthy dialogue listeners where you come down on the role of price and transparency
2: so i talked about us all having a role health plans having a role administrative responsibility providers having a role limitations on what they can charge and how they think about what their their job is consumers have a role so consumers have a role of being responsible for the dollars that they are spending on the healthcare arena let's say So prior to transparency, what people worried about were their out-of-pocket costs. And so we came up with convoluted co-payment systems to encourage them, for example, to go to the primary care physician prior to going to a specialist. But that benefit tweaking is so complicated. One of the things that Priority Health really was a leader on is taking the most frequently used procedures or services and just put out there how much it costs. Do you know how much an MRI costs? Do you know how much a CAT scan costs? And did you know that there are significant price differences depending on who you go to, depending on the site of service? So if a provider, a physician can give a service in his office, it's dramatically less expensive than it's done for example, at a hospital ER room, significantly more expensive <laughs> to go to that setting. And so what I want is for people to take some level of accountability that healthcare isn't something that's done to them. It's something that's done with them. And an informed decision is a better decision for your health, for your well-being. And that includes understanding the cost of the care whether it's a prescription drug or whether it's a service, we should all become more informed on what we're doing. So I, of course,
1: remember a meeting. of uh, Many of our board members sat with HHS Secretary Alex Azar, and one of the topics was transparency. And I remember you taking out your iPad to demonstrate to the Secretary the priority health consumer shopping tool, if you will. And I'd love for you just to describe um, some of the particular features of that tool.
2: Well, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, uh, we love our tool. We came out with it, one of the first in the country, and we took a very different approach than other people. And of course, we've iterated from then. But let's start with the fundamentals. For our transparency tool, what we start with is literally pre-processing the claim. So you get to pick the procedure you're planning on doing. Again, they're the procedures that have variation in costs that are frequently accessed or used and that people are interested in knowing more about. That's kind of the fundamentals of it. We pre-process the claim. So it's based on the person's copay, deductible benefit structure, and their geographic location of where they want to get that service, whether they pick the actual provider or just a zip code. We tell them what the average price is in the market is, and then they can pick where they want to get at the provider. And we'll pre-process that claim and tell them how much they will have to pay out of pocket. It literally is so accurate. I've had people tell me it's within pennies Hmm. of accuracy. So it's amazing. And actually, we thought that people would be interested in this. It turns out they weren't necessarily just interested in financial planning. People were afraid to get services because they were afraid of how much it would cost. Well, let's take the mystery out of that. Here's exactly how much it would cost. And by the way, you could see the difference if you shopped, if you went to this person or that person or this health system or that health system. And it was just completely transparent. And I don't think there's any harm in doing that, that we did procedures where there were not quality differences and where providers were concerned about quality, we addressed that. So the other thing that is different about our tool is that we do encourage people to become informed. So we reward you for shopping. And uh, just to be clear, some of those shopping rewards... It's not just for choosing the cheapest, correct? No, it's for going on the tool and becoming more educated. I'm sorry if I wasn't clear about that. So it starts with going on the tool and just finding out and being educated. We did this years ago with just information about diseases like diabetes. If you watched a video, we reward you in some way. So it's kind of... The educational component of a health plan is something that we believe in. That's part of our job at Priority Health. Can you share a best
1: practice, a favorite example, a success story where we're able to get to affordability or, or make healthcare more affordable and accessible as, as you describe it?
2: Well, you know, we've had, there's some stories that I love about the integrated delivery system. And in the morning, we talked about a procedure that was extremely expensive, actually, by the way, fairly painful at the same time, and yet didn't have any greater efficacy than a lower cost procedure equally painful, less expensive. In either situation, didn't always turn the results. And so as at a round table with physicians at the delivery system and at the health plan, we had a great debate about what was the appropriate thing to do that was in the best interest of the consumers. And I would say by five o'clock that day, we agreed and made policy changes on both sides of the fence so that our common shared patients and members would all get the same type of care and that we were in alignment of what good quality care looked like that was affordable. I I think that is the kind of thing that is really valuable. Well, I'm so
1: glad you also mentioned efficacy and sometimes (laughs) patient pain or discomfort or quality of life because those all factor into, I think, these conversations and decisions. And so it's, it's terrific to hear. I'm going to close on, I don't know if it's a tough question for you or not. I feel like I have my good days and bad days. But do you think that we as a nation can get to this high-value, affordable health
2: system? I am encouraged by the, the progress we've made this year to moving towards value-based care. So we're talking to a number of large health systems in Michigan and really talking about that kind of value-based payment where we are rewarding, we're paying, we're reimbursing to take care of somebody, not paying you for how many services you do. And as providers embrace that and take that on, then I believe that the whole dynamics of the healthcare system can change and will change and will be in our best interest. And if we don't solve this, we don't deserve to have the system that we have today. We need to make, it needs to be different. So I am very supportive on trying things, learning from them, evolving them, working together instead of against each other. Well, we sure agree. We think that folks
1: deserve that care, deserve the very best of care, deserve the information that you're talking about in transparency. And so, Joan, I just
2: I want to thank you for your commitment to this and such a great conversation today. Thank you, Cece. It was a pleasure talking to you. You are such a good leader of ACHP, and these podcasts are a great ideas. So, thank you for having me
0: we'll be back with more of ACHP's Healthy Dialogue after a quick message from our sponsor. Support for Healthy Dialogue comes from New Century Health. New Century Health is the leading value-based specialty management company with a deep focus on improving quality and lowering costs for oncology and cardiology care. New Century Health's evidence-based approach delivers savings for health plans through deep physician engagement and improved patient outcomes, all under a value-based construct that ensures patients receive the highest quality, most affordable care. Learn more at NewCenturyHealth.com.
1: Today, we are joined by Dr. Pat Cornier who serves as CMO for Health Partners in Minnesota. Pat previously advised on health plan and hospital quality for Kaiser Permanente. And before that, he served for 10 years as medical director for Health Partners. So in a sense, he's back home. Pat's a longtime friend of ACHP with a great deal of knowledge on the importance of managing chronic diseases that affect millions of Americans. Pat. Welcome to Healthy Dialogue.
3: Thank you so much, Cece. It's just a delight to be here with you to talk about some really important things today.
1: We know chronic conditions take an incredible toll on our citizens, our families, and interestingly enough, probably represent about 75% of total healthcare costs and the majority of deaths in the United States. So given all of that, Pat, as a physician... Why is it so important that we try to get our hands around chronic conditions?
3: Cece, I'm glad you pointed out that the toll extends to family. And of course, the toll extends well beyond the cost and mortality that comes from chronic health conditions. Living with chronic health conditions in and of itself represents a challenge and can really detract from well-being and enjoyment of life. It really interferes with those that make up our communities from fully enjoying their lives. And managing those chronic conditions can really have a dramatic impact on day-to-day life, day-to-day well-being. And in the long run, both those causes of death and the causes of impairment that come from chronic disease As well as costs, so it's really an area where in terms of the good for our communities and the improvement in overall costs it just makes good sense to pay attention to chronic disease not just treating it but doing everything we can to prevent it
1: i'm so glad you mentioned preventing and and we want to get into that and some of the really exciting approaches that health partners have have been using for some time now before we do though I just have to ask because we've known these basic facts for a long time. It speaks to, as you say, the health of entire communities. It gets at the long-term sustainability of our healthcare system. And yet, why are chronic conditions so hard for us to manage?
3: Number one, to address issues that contribute to the complexity of managing chronic conditions, but also to engage in conversations like this. The fact of the matter is, it's really an uphill battle for individuals. We're surrounded by mixed messages. The idea that we can have everything that we want and suffer no consequences is surrounding us all the time. And at the same time, very strong messages about paying close attention to your habits every day. And that's a difficult thing to deal with. The other is a dimension of this that I don't think is often considered is what is the emotional mental health reserve that we as individuals have when it comes to being able to exert or exercise the kind of effort that's necessary to be able to manage a chronic disease under conditions of chronic stress, under especially now the kinds of uncertainty that we're dealing with, management of chronic disease becomes even more complicated. Last and very importantly, I think... Is the availability of affordable health care coverage for individuals who have chronic diseases so that they have access to the best, most effectively coordinated care available to help them in that very complicated effort?
1: And as I was listening to you, of course, the COVID 19 pandemic came to mind. I mean, I know even myself these past many months, you know, some days you don't get up from your desk to walk and exercise and stretch and stretch or you treat yourself to that dessert and but aside from my silly little challenges again i think for individuals with chronic conditions what has the pandemic either reinforced for you or or shed some light on <sighs>
3: Well, first of all, Cece, those are not silly little challenges. Those are challenges that we face every single day, and they're exacerbated by the fact that we're doing so now in a context where we are disconnected from so many of those that we love and so many opportunities to share social interaction that are more difficult now. You know, the thing about COVID is that it's pointed something out that's really important that almost any threat to health, hits those with chronic disease much harder, both in terms of the risk of death and the long-term consequences of suffering from an illness that is represented by something like COVID-19. In fact, we have been so focused on the question of the 210,000 Americans who have died from COVID that we've forgotten to spend much time thinking about those who suffer long-term consequences as well. As a result, the elderly people of color have been hit particularly hard because they carry a disproportionate share of chronic disease. The other is that it's, it's creating a very significant toll on emotional, physiologic, and economic reserve. And they all play a role in our own individual ability to weather the kind of attack that's represented by getting COVID-19 as it attacks the body. You know, the pandemic has served as a highly visible example of this because of its sudden prevalence. But it's important to understand that that same phenomenon has always been true, that people with chronic disease have less of that kind of physiologic reserve and often have less of the emotional and economic reserve necessary to weather an illness.
1: Well, as you know, Pat, earlier this fall, ACHP rolled out our roadmap 2030, which we have put forth as a set of proposals and strategies and policies to improve the healthcare system for patients and families and communities. And one of the things that I'm so excited about in that roadmap is that our board of directors took two very important pledges because they said it was important that we lead by example, one having to do with affordability and the other focused on chronic conditions and actually making a commitment to track and improve population-based outcome measures for chronic disease. Can you help our Healthy Dialogue listeners understand why this was important
3: Chronic disease is such an important issue, and it was really exciting to me as a physician, as a clinician who had thousands of patients, so many of whom were dealing with this, that the idea of the ACHP members committing to this kind of population-level impact was really very invigorating. It reflects, actually, an ownership. It reflects a recognition of the responsibility of the member organizations And it's a public declaration of accountability. And as an organization, we recognize that our connection to our community is a very powerful point of leverage to be able to have an impact on the way chronic disease affects those that we serve.
1: And you, of course, have spent a a good part of your career, not all of it, but much of it in these organizations, nonprofit companies that partner the payer and the provider,
4: Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now at Health Partners, an integrated system that has both the health plan dimension and then the care delivery side. From all of your experience, do you see this approach as being better positioned to tackle chronic conditions?
3: You know, I do. And I think the, the history speaks for itself. We can't deny the fact that there is a significant interaction between both the access to affordable health care coverage and the way that coverage is configured. We can't ignore the fact that that has an impact on the way we manage care. And by connecting effectively between healthcare care delivery organizations and healthcare finance organizations like the health plans in ACHP, what we're able to do is to better understand at a deeper level how that interaction affects care. And we can do so in a way that's responsible with a focus on the ability to deliver high-quality care at the same time that we're attentive to the idea that if it's not affordable, it's not available. And if it's not available, it's not going to make the kind of difference that we want. By having that kind of insight, health plans, for instance, can create both incentives and benefit structures that support effective treatment of chronic disease. And they can also help to make sure that every single dollar that our communities entrust to us, hand over to us, are creating the greatest health benefit for those that we serve.
1: And we certainly see that in, in all of our other ACHP members. I want to shift slightly, but I think it's still pretty relevant And that is last year, Health Partners was one of only two organizations in the nation to receive the Health Equity Award from CMS. And it clearly was focused on increasing access and reducing disparities. But it seems to me as a layperson, that ties right in with our conversation on chronic conditions.
3: Yeah, you know, they say that you can see a smile in the voice that you're hearing over audio, and I hope that you can hear my smile right now. (laughs) It was a, a real honor to be recognized for that work. It is something that kind of reflects back on a word that I used before, and that is ownership, responsibility, and accountability. One of the things that I've admired about Health Partners as an organization is that very early on, earlier than almost anyone in the country they began to look at the race and eth- racial and ethnic background of their own population as reported by patients that we serve to better understand not the abstract knowledge that we had that minority populations populations of color suffered inequities when it came to care But to do so in a way that was tangible, that reflected those that we were accountable for and accountable to in our own population. And by measuring that in our own population, we really just had to face the idea that we had an obligation to figure out ways to address those disparities and began a series of conversations with the communities affected by those disparities, as well as the implementation of a series of different initiatives aimed at trying to address the inequities, improve the performance overall, while at the same time closing the gap between what we observed in those who got the best of the care and were reflected in our general population and those who were suffering the consequences of those inequities. And for us, it has made a difference. It's actually, if anything, to us proven what's possible. And it's made us impatient about what it is that we can do more broadly, even in the areas than uh, that we've been successful in.
1: There was one other program that I thought our listeners might be interested in learning a little bit more about the Health Partners Enhanced Primary Care Approach for Diabetes Management. And that's been going on for quite some time, correct?
3: Yeah, yeah, it has. In fact, I'm chuckling a little bit because I remember as a young physician, in fact, uh, a, a resident at Methodist Hospital, which is a part of the Park Nicollet organization that's a member of the Health Partners family, getting training at the International Diabetes Center, which has actually been around since 1967. And the thing that I really enjoyed about that particular experience is that I was in the room with other clinicians and patients and families who were working to understand and gain better control over their diabetes. And so for me to see that that blending and that mixing and that decades and decades-long commitment to education and improved control over this chronic disease is pretty darn powerful. And that's something that has extended not just to folks like me who were trained in the system, but Around the globe, the International Diabetes Center is a source of insight and work across the globe. The other is that as an organization, we recognize that good intention by well meaning teams and clinicians, and in this case, primary care clinicians, really isn't going to cut it. They need to be surrounded both by the kinds of education and support represented by the International Diabetes Center but they also need to be surrounded by organizations that can effectively implement what we know and understand how to surround those teams with the technology and operational execution to be able to support better care.
1: And and sticking with diabetes for a minute, that is one of the two chronic conditions, diabetes and heart conditions, that the ACHP member companies chose to focus on in this important pledge over the next decade. And from your perspective, significance to those two?
3: Well, first of all, heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. As of 2019, I suspect even in 2020, with COVID in a race to to overtake it, it will be the leading cause of death. Diabetes is number seven. Now, combined those two have, as we've talked about before, a devastating impact on residents, the people of the United States and our communities. The other thing that I think is important about those two is that they affect such a large number of people across the country and the very same things that we do to gain better control over heart disease and diabetes have a beneficial effect on other major contributing risks of disease and disability. Stroke, for example, and also the complications from diabetes like kidney failure, vision loss, heart disease, amputation. By effectively managing both heart disease and diabetes, we affect a large proportion of the population.
1: I have to say there are so many challenges we face as a country right now, and some days feel a little dark, but talking to you, it feels a bit brighter. I love the focus on what is possible and now drilling into the motivation. Dr. Pat Cornier, thank you for joining us on Healthy Dialogue.
3: Thank you so much, CeCe.
0: We'll be back with more of ACHP's Healthy Dialogue after a quick message from our sponsor. Altruista Health is committed to serving ACHP health plans as a proud member of the ACHP Corporate Alliance program. Altruista innovated the guiding care technology platform for the care management of health plan members. As the nation's largest and most widely adopted care management platform, Guiding Care has the strength and depth to manage care for any member, in any setting, in any population. Visit their website at altruistahealth.com.
1: Today, we are pleased to welcome Representative Tom Reed to Healthy Dialogue. Congressman Reed represents New York's 23rd Congressional District and is co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus, a bipartisan group of lawmakers going against the contentious grain in Washington these days. He's a longtime advocate for policies that help those living with chronic conditions. Congressman Reed, we are so honored to have you with us today. Welcome to Healthy Dialogue.
5: Well, thank you so much, CC, for having me on. I really do appreciate it.
1: And we are so happy to talk to you today about some healthcare priorities, the COVID-19 pandemic, your thoughts in terms of healthcare. I want to jump right in and start with the COVID-19 pandemic. What sort of impact you're seeing in your communities? And really, in your view, has this exposed some of the flaws in our healthcare system?
5: Well, you know, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic is historic. We haven't seen something like this in any of our lifetimes. And it uh, has been amazing what it has done for so many folks across the country. And it truly is an emergency. And, you know, I but I'm always the optimist. And you know what it is also highlighted is uh, the amazing uh, nature uh, of america and the american people and i've just seen in our district people stepping up people helping people people you know rising to the challenge and you know there was a lot of anxiety fear especially in the beginning but what i've also seen though is it's raised some flaws that we i think will learn from in regards to our healthcare systems the things like our supply chains and the dependency on areas like China, people outside our domestic control here in America, and that needs to be fixed. We can never be caught again in this situation where we're dependent upon others that are outside of our control in America. And you see that in the pharmaceutical industry. You see that across all different areas. But we've also seen some positive developments as a result of COVID-19 in healthcare, things like telehealth and the delivery of service that so many people were afraid of. But I will tell you, People have embraced it and providers have embraced it. So that means better healthcare, better healthcare outcomes when it comes to telehealth services. And I think that is something we can hopefully achieve a silver lining out of the COVID-19 crisis and all the death and destruction that we've seen from it. I always try to look at the positive in things.
1: Well, it's delightful to have that positive perspective. And I think you've hit on a really important one in telehealth. So maybe we can stick with that for one minute. And I love to hear an elected official talking about health outcomes. We don't often have that sort of insight. But on telehealth, Congressman, is it going to be possible for Congress to come together and keep these flexibilities and make them permanent so we don't go backward?
5: I think so. And you, if you don't know my background in Congress, I've definitely committed myself in Congress. I'm a proud Republican, but I have many friends across aisle, and I work with anyone on the Democratic side who, who wants to have the debate but find common ground. And area, an area of common ground is telehealth services. I think there was concern across both party lines. Is this something that the health care system in America could adapt to and could the American patient utilized telehealth services. And what COVID-19 has shown is that the patient from young to old has embraced telehealth services. And I think you're going to see this as something where Democrats and Republicans can agree. It needs to be part of our healthcare portfolio. It is not the cure. It's not going to solve our healthcare problems and access to care, but it is going to surely Help us do that. And so I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to make this a permanent component of America's healthcare delivery system in the future.
1: And now, Congressman, you're being a little modest, just mentioning that you work across the aisle. You're co chair of a group called the Problem Solvers Caucus. And by the way, I love that name. But for our Healthy Dialogue listeners, can you explain a little bit about who the problem solvers are and maybe what you're trying to do with respect to? COVID nineteen right now?
5: Well, I really appreciate that. This is a caucus I founded four years ago with a group of other members. There were twenty-five Democrats, twenty-five Republicans. I co it on the Republican side with my good friend on the Democratic side, Josh Gottheimer from New Jersey. And what we are is we're an official caucus of Congress that essentially said enough is enough. We're proud Republicans. We're proud Democrats. But what we are committed to is working together to find common ground. And we have officially adopted bylaws where when we find that common ground, we agree to vote as a block if we get the 75 percent consensus of us agreeing on a proposal or an issue or a letter or a legislative proposal. And we'll bring 50 votes to the floor of the House to try to influence the House to go that way. But one of one example that we have done in the Braunschweig Caucus to show it is more important now, especially in COVID-19, when you're dealing with a national emergency and a crisis, that we work together as American citizens first, rather than just being a Republican or a Democrat 24-7.
1: And I don't want to get too into the weeds, but I do think with respect to the pandemic and the likelihood that it's still going to be with us through the winter, who knows for how long until we've got some sort of uh, vaccine available to much of the population. And so with that in mind, Congressman, where do you see a role for Congress when it comes to testing and contact tracing. I know some bills have included federal dollars for that. What about you and the problem solvers?
5: Yeah, we allocated, absolutely, there's an additional for federal investment on the need for additional testing, contact tracing. Obviously, we're making major investments in vaccine purchasing, pre-inventory acquisition, pre- distribution supply lines, that is a positive thing that we should be well ahead of when the vaccine is approved, which is a good thing. And that is good. So, you know, we are going to make sure that these resources are delivered because you're absolutely right. The ultimate solution to this problem of COVID-19 is a vaccine, but we're going to have to get through this window of time that's ahead of us before that vaccine is widely distributed and available to the American people to keep them safe. And that means these resources have to be delivered.
1: I'd like us to pivot to the topic of chronic conditions, because you have been so thoughtful on that challenge really in our society. I believe you have legislation right now that would open up Medicare access for diabetes self-management training, which to me, sounds as if the opportunity to help many of these individuals live more independent lives. But maybe you can talk through that proposal and where we need to go as a country on chronic conditions.
5: Well, I appreciate that opportunity. That's another passion of mine. not only trying to fix the dysfunction of Washington D political environment with the problems of caucus, but I'm the father of a type one diabetic son. My wife and I, he is now 20. He was diagnosed at four, and we've been living with diabetes in our family for for years. And the Diabetes Caucus and myself have been promoting this Diabetes Self-Management Training Legislation and the Special Diabetes Fund and others to deal with this chronic condition. And the Diabetes Self-Management Training Legislation is to provide the resources, which would seem common sense. It's essentially to encourage in our Medicaid and Medicare, Medicare in particular, the resources to have folks be more self-aware, to be able to manage their diabetic condition and get their A1Cs under control, get them in a position where they're not having the comorbidities, they're not having the amputations, they're not having the the blindness, they're not having the highs and lows that cause all those issues that the uncontrolled diabetic condition creates. And so this is to create that policy that limits those comorbidities and quality of life impacts that we're talking about. And that's what chronic conditions really lead to, right? That's if you don't have good adherence to protocols to manage those chronic conditions, not only are the chronic conditions out of control, but all of the impacts on people's quality of life and all the comorbidities and that spiral down in that health condition just gets really out of control. And if you talk not just from a quality of life perspective, you you look at the cost on our healthcare system, and it's drastically increased when these chronic conditions are out of control.
1: And Again, just reflecting on the pandemic experience now of uh, seven months here, I think we've seen that for people with chronic conditions, this has been an especially challenging period.
5: Absolutely. And that's where telehealth has been such a, a critical service during these times. But the the real downside is I've heard stories you know, during the crisis, and I've anecdotally seen this, and I'm just very concerned what the ultimate numbers are going to show, is people with chronic conditions have lost contact with their healthcare providers, with their healthcare systems, and those chronic conditions have gone unattended. And, and, you know, we talked about, you know, they talked about the closing of elective services and surgeries, and I never call them that. And, And I never call them that because most of those services that our healthcare providers are providing are not elective. They're just, they can be timed. They can be scheduled. They're non-emergency. And when that happens, a lot of the chronic conditions folks are not being seen by their physicians. They're not talking to their caregivers. And when that happens, that's the problem, right? That's when the condition gets out of control. That's when they lose their proper medication doses. They lose the interaction with their provider.
1: Well, and if I were to just toss in a little shameless promotion here of our Alliance of Community Health Plan members, I'd say not only do they agree with you, but they really approach this from the perspective of the community health plan being in on that partnership as well, working with the providers, the clinical teams, community groups, etc. As you say, you know to really manage these challenges it, it seems it, we certainly view this as a really collaborative endeavor
5: uh, cc I, I i was remiss not to acknowledge that <laughs> the way you as community health plans approach it is exactly you know, you, you're preaching to the choir amen <laughs> because that is exactly the way that we're going to tackle our healthcare problem in america i think in a positive way you're you're looking at the big picture you're not looking at it from a a transactional medical service, you're looking at the patient, you're looking at it holistically, and that's a better outcome from a quality of life perspective. And also, you know, from a fiscal conservative, proud Republican, you know, from a bean counter perspective, it also is a win there. So it's a win-win all the way, all the way around.
1: Absolutely. I'm going to close on, it might be a little bit of a tricky question, but why can't you get a problem solvers caucus in the Senate?
5: <laughs> well, actually, I'll give you some good news there. So we've been doing this for four years now. And in the last two years in particular, we've identified a group of senators that are meeting with us weekly when we're in D.C. And, and also virtually now, too. There's eight senators that are committed to this type of governance that are working with us. And I will tell you, it's catching. And so stay tuned. It's growing. Now, they're not formalized as we are in the Problem Solver Caucus because I guess they're senators and I, I defer to them and how they want to do it. But the good thing is they're spending an hour, sometimes up to two hours with us. And if you get a U.S. senator spending an hour or two hours with a group of House members, I know we're on to something. because that never happened in my tenure prior to Congress so being in Congress. So uh, I'll just tell you, we're, we're catching fire. So stay tuned as we try to keep changing this culture of D.C. in a positive way.
1: OK, well, we may be breaking a little news here on Healthy Dialogue and certainly unconventional, given how cranky Washington can feel these days. This was a nice, upbeat conversation. And I just want to thank you, Congressman Reed, for this discussion on healthy dialogue and for your work in health care.
5: I appreciate that. CC, and Never give up. I know uh, it seems that the, there's a lot of dysfunction and there's a lot of polarization and there is uh, in Congress and in America, but we are trying to get better and we can become united once again.
0: We'll be back with more of ACHP's Healthy Dialogue after a quick message from our sponsor. Wellframe strategically partners with health plans nationwide to reimagine the relationship between plans and members. By combining innovative AI-enabled solutions, strategic partnerships, and passionate conviction, Wellframe creates a measurable impact on lives, at scale. Learn more about their digital health management solutions at Wellframe.com.
1: So regular listeners of Healthy Dialogue know that typically at this point in the episode, we call it CC Needs a Minute. But we decided today to turn the microphone over to our good friend, Joe Pfeiffer at HFMA, because Joe thinks a lot like us on topics around consumerism and affordability and what he recently called hard truths. So Joe, enjoy the microphone.
4: Thank you, CC. I think you know I'm an optimist by nature, but I've been troubled by what I see in healthcare, an industry I have been in virtually my whole professional life and one that I love. You see, there's been so much change, so much turmoil, yet economically no real change. We are still on an unsustainable path, and trust in our industry continues to wane. Why? Not to oversimplify it, but leadership is lacking. Politicians who speak in soundbites, reducing a complex debate into one that goes about an inch deep. The media, who loves to sensationalize issues under the moniker of investigative reporting, but oftentimes stay on anecdotes and miss the big picture. Healthcare leaders often make decisions fulfilling their fiduciary responsibilities, but without consideration of the impact on real people. To sum it all up, a lack of honest and courageous leadership. Now, I'm not one to point fingers at a single villain. All the constituencies in healthcare, insurers, public and private, all provider types, employers, employers, and, yes, consumers, have all contributed to the current state of healthcare. We all need to contribute to fixing it. One key area that I am passionate about is transparency, both price and quality. That includes surprise bills, which is impossible to rationalize as a consumer. Yes, surprise bills as a topic is a sticky issue, almost always as a result of disagreements between payers against providers, with consumers caught right in the middle. Would you like to receive a surprise bill? Then there's the payment model environment. It is just so fragmented and volume-based. Value-based payments just haven't taken hold yet. At HFMA, we are politically agnostic. We do not lobby per se. So this next thought is purely a Joe Pfeiffer thought. But I would advocate for Medicare Advantage for all. While there would be much to work out, at its core it would provide for universal coverage yet provide choice for consumers to pick the plan they want, like we do for any other consumer good. But that's more than a two-minute take. An additional word on consumerism. It was sometime in the mid-2000s when I was at Spectrum Health, we published charges and payment rates from Medicare, Medicaid, and average commercial rates on our website. Soon thereafter, we started offering out-of-pocket estimates to every scheduled patient. Here we are, 15 years later, still fighting about it. Again, why? Releasing these rates will not destroy health systems or insurers, and it won't ruin careers. How do we explain this lack of consumer focus to our communities? We typically don't. We hide from it. Will consumerism fix all that ails healthcare? I have never made that argument. Is being treated as a true consumer a reasonable expectation from our public? it's hard to argue otherwise. It is time, time for courageous leadership. If we don't create a financially sustainable model, including putting consumers at the center, someone else will do it for us. And I do not think they will get it right.
1: Wow. Joe Pfeiffer, leadership is lacking in so many corners, but not Mm -hmm. when it comes to you. Thank you for sharing these thoughts on Healthy Dialogue.
4: Well, thanks for having me, Cece. It's great to chat with you.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of healthy dialogue. Learn more about the Alliance of Community Health Plans at ECHP.org and click the Add to Contacts button to connect directly with our team. We hope you'll also find us on Twitter at underscore ECHP and on LinkedIn. And if you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Reviews help new listeners find our podcast and hopefully spur more healthy dialogue out there.